Ross, that's a big issue, a huge issue. It's causing has throughout the history of redemption, but in our day, maybe more than ever, the issue is picking up more steam and really dividing the ranks of Christians at a time when we cannot afford to be divided over these matters uh, because the world, I don't know if you knew this, seems to be spinning out of control. Unbelievable. We do not have the luxury to part ways over certain things that we just have to agree to disagree about agreeably. It's not required that Christians see all things the same way. That's not the test of fellowship. The fundamentals of the faith are non-negotiables. We have a sin nature. Jesus, the sinless one, himself God, existing from before time, came in the form of man to offer us the only possible way whereby the debt we owe God through our sin could be canceled out. He suffered and died in our place. If he didn't pay the debt for our sin, we would be left to pay it for ourselves. There's nothing we could do to merit it. It's just accepting what he's done as an inexpressible gift. When once we do that, he takes up his abode in our life in the form of God, the Holy Spirit. So God the Father sent God the Son, and when we accept God the Son, he sends God the Spirit to indwell us. And God's Spirit illuminates his word for us. It was a closed book, but now we can understand it. The Holy Spirit in us changes our mind, our values, our convictions, and even gives us assurance that one day when all this is over, we'll stand in new and glorified bodies in the very presence of Almighty God, there to be with Him forevermore. All these things are expressed in Scripture. We believe there are 66 books. The first one is Genesis, and the last is Revelation, and we think they're without error. Why do we think that? Well, because of the doctrine of inspiration. If God inspired the Bible, then it is inerrant because God cannot inspire an erroneous product. And so uh, these are the fundamentals of the faith that we cannot negotiate about. But there are many, many other collateral peripheral issues uh, where well-intentioned Christians differ. And here is one. Uh, you wrestled a little bit with the question regarding salvation. Did I choose God or did God choose me? And answers to the, that question puts us in one of two possible camps. I mentioned them briefly a few weeks ago and told you we would do a more thorough job uh, tonight. And I did that to buy time and pray like crazy for the rapture. Um, but hopefully it didn't happen yet. Otherwise, you and I are, you know. So, um, so here are the two schools of thought regarding the very question you discussed. One is called Arminianism. Now, I apologize. This is a little theological. We'll get practical in a second, but you should be familiar. Arminianism is the term. It's named after a, a, a Dutch pastor named Jacobus Arminius. Arminius. And so uh, if you're an Arminian, you, with respect to salvation, you emphasize human responsibility. You're a person, you're a free will person. You say we each have free will. 
When the gospel is presented, you accept it or reject it. This is a matter of your doing, your, cho your choice. That's Arminianism. It's not a bad word or anything like that, but that's kind of the camp. And then the other camp is called Calvinism. Calvinism. You've heard of John Calvin, one of the greatest reformers. He was a Swiss uh, reformer. And um, uh, if you're more Calvinistic, then you would emphasize with respect to salvation, not so much human responsibility and choice as much as God's sovereignty and what's called divine election. So if you're a Calvinist, you would say from before time as an exercise of God's sovereign will, entirely apart from anything in us, good or bad, God elected some to salvation. You could not save yourself. Your interest in seeking God and being saved is not inherent in you. God, from beginning to end, saved you, which begs the question, well, if you've been elected to salvation, why not others? Did God predestine some to be saved and some to enter into perdition or hell? So that's that's Calvinism. So these are big issues um, because uh, many people today are requiring of churches that they stake out their ground and answer the question, are you Arminian in your perspective? And then this horrible word, or, or, are you Calvinistic? And depending on how you answer, you, you, have, you could have a divide. So, I'm going to tell you before we finish tonight what I think the right answer is. Uh, and I think Paul gives it to us in the text before us. It's Romans chapter 9. And tonight, we're going to do something crazy. We're going to cover more than two to three verses. Unbelievable. And some don't believe in miracles. Are you kidding? We're going to look at the first 20, you heard it here, 29 verses. For crying out loud, I'm just exhausted just thinking about it. The first 29 verses because it relates to this issue of Calvinism versus Arminianism. Not that the terms were in Paul's mind, but the issue was in Paul's mind. Did you save yourself? Or did you choose God or did he choose you? So let's, let's just dive in. Verse 1 of Romans uh, chapter 9, and while you turn there, let me just tell you, uh, this text has caused me more uh, upheaval, aggravation, uh, confusion, and has given rise to more questions in my mind than any text in the Bible I have ever read. I, I want to confess to you at the beginning, I don't feel that I have a good handle on all of the uh, facets of Romans chapter 9. I think I know the broad strokes. I think I can trace Paul's argumentation here, and thus uh, I, I think I'm not going to do undue damage to you or, or, or lead you astray or cause you to stumble. But, but I have to confess, I don't get it. I don't understand it. I don't see how it really plays out. So... And I feel perfectly fine about telling you that. I don't know if you knew this, but uh, only God knows all things, and the rest of us are rather limited. Uh, now, now, my lack of clarity is not because I didn't study. I study like crazy. 
hours and hours and hours, and I was just filled with more questions, to tell you the truth, than fast conclusions. So uh, that's a bit of a disclaimer tonight. Here we go, verse 1. I'm telling the truth in Christ. Paul starts out that way. I'm not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit. Why in the world would an apostle of such renown have to take such pains to stake out the ground here and demonstrate that he's sincere and sincere? Well, because he was accused of stuff. One of the things he was accused of as a Jew was abandoning Jewish causes and going over to the Gentiles. He is writing now primarily to Jewish believers in Rome at the time. So he's defending himself to them, and he's saying, listen, hear me out. I'm speaking from the depths of my heart with utmost sincerity. And here's what he says, verse 2, that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. Why? For I could wish that I myself were accursed. That word is, maybe you've heard about it, anathema, anathema. Sometimes we use the word it's the strongest form of uh, negation available in the Greek language. He's saying, I, I, if, if it was possible, I could wish that I myself were, 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 were entirely, that I was an anathema, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren. Now, uh, who's he referring to? Uh, Gentile and Jewish Christians? No. Look, for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh. He's saying, I'm speaking to you, other Jewish believers, with utmost sincerity. I would be willing to exchange if it were possible. I know it's not, but if it were, I would be willing to exchange my own salvation and count myself anathema in the eyes of God if in some way doing so would accrue to the account of my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh, fellow Jews. And then he spells out the unique spiritual privileges given to the Jews. Verse 4, who are Israelites, to whom belongs the adoption as sons, and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the temple service and the promises, who are the fathers and from whom is the Christ according to the flesh, who is over all, God blessed forever. And then he says, amen. Folks, in those first five verses, uh, Paul shares his heart and then enumerates the special privileges that God has bequeathed upon Jewish people. If we had time, we could, we could talk about each one. You know, the covenants, all the covenants of the Old Testament were given to Israel, the fact that the Christ himself, the Messiah himself in the flesh, in his humanity was, was Jewish. The law was given to the Jews through Moses on Mount Sinai. The temple served all these things. Paul is saying, I'm fully aware of the privileges bestowed upon my kinsmen according to the flesh. Now, here's why he does all that. At the end of the last chapter, you will recall, Paul made the statement, nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. Now people are asking him this question. That doesn't seem to be the case with these Jews. <laughs> if God bestowed all these rich blessings on the Jews, 
why is it that only a minority of Jews even believe in Jesus? How could it be that that verse in Romans 8 about God retaining his love for people, how could it be true when it appears he has separated himself from the Jews? Very few of them believe in Paul's day, in our day. Very few. From a statistical point of view, the question could be raised, how could you speak to us of what you said about God's love being eternal and unconditional, nothing separating us from his love? What about the Jews? Look at all the investment God had in their life. That's what Paul enumerated here. How do you therefore explain the fact that very few Jews are faithful followers of their own Messiah, Yeshua, or the Lord Jesus? Why don't more Jewish people believe in Jesus if in fact God is faithful to them, kept his promises, his covenants, and has not separated himself from them. If God chose the Jews, why have so few responded to him? Has God unchosen the Jews? That's kind of what's happening here. Has God unchosen the Jews? And if he has changed his mind about Israel... Shouldn't we be worried about him one day changing his mind about us? So what's at stake here has nothing to do with Arminianism or Calvinism. It really has to do with the integrity of Almighty God. If he cannot be proven to be faithful to Israel, that's a matter of integrity. How can you and I count on him to be faithful to us? So that being the case, Paul starts if you will, a defense of how God has worked out the plan of salvation. Because the question raised, in essence, is, has God lied? God made an eternal covenant with the Jews. I'll never leave you or forsake you. You know, all this kind of stuff. I mean, they look like a forsaken people. There's just a handful of Jews, a remnant, who believed then and, and now. So someone could ask the question, well, has God replaced them? Is he through with them? Has he lied to them? Has he failed? And so Paul begins to answer now in verse 6. He said, no, 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 no. It's not as though the word of God has failed. Why not? For they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. Now, I'll tell you what Paul's about to do here. It gets real complicated, real tricky, and real confusing to me. So, so, so bear with me. He's going to make this point. If God promised that every Jew, because he's a Jew, will be saved, then God lied. But God never promised that. <laughs> In fact, not everyone, as it says here, uh, descended from Israel is real Israel. In other words, you could be born a Jew, but not be born again. And if you're not born again, even though you're a Jew, God didn't fail you. You failed him. He didn't reject you. You rejected him. So what Paul's about to do is to show critics, they are imaginary critics. He, he answers questions. He imagines people are going to throw at him. That's what's happening. It's called diatribe. It was an ancient principle of argumentation. You imagine a fictitious critic 
ask, stating an objection, and you answer it before he states it. That's what he's doing. So Paul's going to make the case here in three ways. He's going to show the Jews in their own Hebrew scriptures. We call it the Old Testament, but they didn't have the new then, so they call it Hebrew scriptures. He's going to show them in three ways that God has always, now here are some words that need to get me in trouble, elected, predestined, chosen, only some, and not all. Now, hang in there. Don't throw things at me until we, we finish uh, uh, tonight. He's going to demonstrate divine sovereignty. He's going to demonstrate first with uh, Isaac and Ishmael. God chose Isaac, not Ishmael. Second, with Jacob and Esau. God chose Jacob, not Esau. Third, with Pharaoh. God redeemed Moses, but not Pharaoh. God hardened Pharaoh's heart. He's going to give three Old Testament examples to Jewish critics to show them, oh, no, 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 no. God would have only lied to you if he promised that just because you're Jewish, you'll be saved. If that's what he promised you and you're not saved, he lied. But he never promised you that. In fact, the way he works out things is always to elect, choose some, but not all. That sounds a lot like Calvinism, doesn't it? Okay, but hang in there. Don't be throwing stuff just yet. In your hearts, I know you are. Hang in there just for a second. We've got to develop the whole, the whole text. Okay, so, so, so he, he continues, verse 7. Nor are they all children because they are Abraham's descendants, but through Isaac your descendants will be na named. You see? Through Isaac. So Abraham had two sons, Isaac and Ishmael. Isaac was born miraculously, through Sarah. Ishmael was born through a horrific partnership orchestrated by Sarah between Abraham and a slave woman, Hagar. And God said, I've chosen Isaac to be the one through whom the line of promise will pass, not Ishmael, but Isaac. And so it says, quoting from Genesis, there at the end of verse 7, through Isaac your descendants will be named. That is, it's not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of promise are regarded as descendants. For this is the word of promise. At this time I'll come, Sarah will have a son. God promised Sarah and Abraham a son. It's Isaac. God said, blessing will pass through that line and not through Ishmael's line. So Paul first makes the case to Jewish critics who think God is unfair. What do you mean? What God is doing in in electing some uh, to salvation is not new. I mean, he did it in the Old Testament. Notice, he chose to favor and bless Isaac and not Ishmael. That's the first argument. Now, the second thing is going to concern Jacob and Esau because Paul is anticipating. Some will say, oh, I know why he chose Isaac. Isaac was the product of Abraham and Sarah. I know why he rejected Ishmael. Ishmael was the product of Abraham, yeah, but also of a non-Jewish slave woman, Hagar. So to counteract that argument, the next illustration, this is complicated, isn't it? I'm telling you, not everything in the Bible is, you got to really wrestle with it, don't you? But it's worth wrestling with. So, so Paul offers now another illustration. It's of two twins born of the same parents, Isaac and Rebekah. They had two kids. And that's who Paul speaks of next, verse 10. Not only this, 
There was Rebekah also when she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac. For though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose according to his choice would stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls. It was said to her, the older will serve the younger. So while they were enwombed, these two twins, before they could manifest any virtue or vice, God in his sovereignty elected, elected to bless and work through one and not the other. God, inexplicably, we don't know why, chose Jacob to be the, in the line of promise and rejected Esau. In fact, as it says in verse 12, what should happen is that the older should serve the younger. So uh, Ishmael was older than Isaac. Isaac should be serving him. But God reversed it based on his own choice. So too with Jacob and Esau. Esau was the oldest. Jacob should be serving him. But God reversed it and said, no, I'm going to have Esau serve Jacob. You, you cry out. You say to yourself, why? God, how is this fair? If, in fact, neither baby had a chance to demonstrate any good thing yet, they were, they were, they, they were still in the womb. How do you just arbitrarily put your finger on one and clench your fist to another? I mean, that's kind of what it's looking like here. Why did you choose Isaac and not Ishmael? Why did you choose Jacob and not Esau? Now, the point here, Paul's not explaining a thing. You know what he's doing right now? He's just stating how God operated. Because he's telling the Jews, Jewish believers in Rome, what are you complaining about? This is not new. In your own scriptures, look at divine election. Look at how God predestined some for special blessing and others for isolation and separation from him. So he's using Old Testament examples here. Then verse 13, just as it is written, Jacob I've loved, but Esau I hated. Whoa. What does that mean? Well, it's a quotation from Malachi chapter 1. Be careful here. Um, when it says Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated, it doesn't mean hate in the sense we might use it. It's a Semitic term. It's a Hebrew term. And it means by way of contrast, God's love and devotion and choice of Jacob so exceeds his connection to Esau, it could be likened to love versus hate. It's not hate in the actual sense. It's a, almost a figure of speech to, to, to exaggerate a truth. And that is, once again, based on divine election, God made a choice of one as over against the other. And now that leads to the question I'm asking. I suppose you are too. And Paul addresses it here in verse 14. What shall we say then? If this is true, God chose Jacob over uh, Esau, he chose Isaac over Ishmael. Oh, this is true. This is, you know, everything is it's just up to God. He just does his thing. It has nothing to do with us. He chooses who he wants to. He rejects who he wants. If that's the case, what shall we say then? And then Paul asks, there is no injustice with God, is there? And then he answers his own question. May, may it never be. 
But wait, Paul, if God elected some and not others, isn't God guilty of isn't God guilty of injustice in choosing Isaac and rejecting Ishmael and in choosing Jacob and rejecting Esau? Now Paul rejects that accusation that God is injustice unjust by citing a passage from Exodus 33 verse 19. It's quoted in verse 15. But I looked at verse 15 like for a long time, thinking Paul is going to give a good answer to the question he raised in verse 14. We don't get an answer in verse 15. We simply get a statement. Look, verse 15. For he says to Moses, God made this statement in Exodus chapter 33, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Folks, that is not an explanation of the doctrine of divine election. That is simply a statement that God can do anything he wants to do. This is God asserting his sovereignty. This is God saying, how dare you not permit me to be God? I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. You know what God is saying? Nobody deserves mercy. If I have mercy on some, not on others, you ought to praise me for having mercy on some and stop criticizing me for not having mercy on others. God is essentially saying here, I can do whatever I want to do. I'm, I'm sovereign God. Verse 16, so it doesn't depend on man who wills. Now that looks like uh, Paul is emphasizing the, the um, divine sovereignty perspective as over against the human responsibility, free will perspective. But hang in there, we're not done yet. So it doesn't depend on the man who wills or on the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. Paul is saying if someone is saved, there's only one explanation for it. It has nothing to do with your will with you running about, with you doing this, you doing that, going here, going there. The explanation for your salvation is singular. It's that God chose to have mercy on you. Why not the person sitting next to you? We're not, we don't get an answer. We get a statement. God can have mercy on whom he will have mercy. He can show compassion to those he will have compassion. Now, those of you with a Calvinistic bent are loving what we're talking about right now. You're saying, preach on, preach on. Yeah, well, hang on, because we're not done. So, 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 so anyway, uh, God did not notice more virtue in Isaac than Ishmael. Uh, God, while the twins were enwombed, God did not peer into the womb and choose Jacob as over against Esau because he saw greater potential. Uh, he saw more virtue. No. The explanation for why some were elected and chosen and others were not simply is couched in this whole concept of the mercy of God. God can have mercy on whom he will have mercy. He simply can and does make choices in accordance with his own mercy. Okay. Two examples offered thus far to demonstrate to imaginary critics that God, in the exercise of his divine and sovereign will, chooses who he wants to to be saved. Now Paul offers a third and final example with regard to God making his own choices. It has to do with Pharaoh, the leader of Egypt. And uh, what we're about to read in verse 17 is taken from Exodus chapter 9, 
verse 16. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I raised you up. God had a purpose in raising up, in electing, in uh, predestinating Pharaoh for something. For this purpose I raised you up. What is it? To demonstrate my power in you. That is a very strong statement on predestination and divine election. I may have predestined and elected Moses to be redeemed, but I elected Pharaoh for the purpose of illustrating in his resistance and rebellion for him to offer an opportunity for me to manifest my power and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. Holy Toledo. That is a strong statement on divine sovereignty, which looks almost arbitrary. Are you kidding me? You chose to soften Moses, but harden Pharaoh? In fact, if you read in Exodus, well, read verse 18. So then he has mercy on whom he desires, and he hardens whom he desires. Whoa. If you read in Exodus, you find out, it says numbers of times, and God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Of course, you find just as many times, it says, and Pharaoh hardened his own heart. Which is it? Ah, see, that's the dilemma. Which, which, which is it? This text is simply making the point, don't be so surprised when God exercises his divine prerogative to elect, to choose some for some things and others for others. He has a right to do that. Now, Paul anticipates another objection. Perhaps you're raising it in your own mind. Verse 19, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault for who resists his will? I mean, for crying out loud. If he just softens who he wants to and hardens others, how could he hold those with a hardened heart responsible? Because who could counter God's will? If God's just making these arbitrary choices, some are softened and saved, others are hardened and lost, then those who are lost shouldn't be penalized for it because they have no control over God's decree. He can just make, do people what they want to do. That's the, that's the questions here. Now, Paul's going to answer this one. In verse 20, but I want you to notice something. This is really frustrating to me. I got to tell you, I was really praying for the rapture like crazy before tonight. This is really frustrating me because that's like a good question, don't you think? I mean, I don't know the answer. I want to know the answer. God, what's the deal? How could you hold anyone responsible for the eternal situation if, in fact, you determine what it's going to be? So I'm waiting now for the wonderful Paul to give an answer. And this is what he does in verse 20. On the contrary... Who are you, O oh man, who answers back to God? Holy Toledo, I feel rebuked. I just got spanked. Did you get spanked? I'm waiting for uh, an exposition. I, I'm waiting for him to clear this all up. Yeah, I got questions, Paul. You know, how could God go around doing this stuff? And if he does do this stuff, he elects some to salvation and others... You know, he rejects, and how could he hold anyone responsible? Well, you tell me, Paul, I'm waiting. And then Paul says, excuse me just a second. Who do you think you are? You know, I think we need a little bit of that. It just really humbled me. I don't stand as a critic of God. Human beings have no right 
to judge God who is their judge? The creature, us, has no right to review and give approval or disapproval to the creator. Paul says, just let me just stop you for a second. Stop thinking God is your equal, your peer. Stop thinking that he's obligated to, to, to give you full comprehension of all of his ways before you give him your stamp of approval. Stop thinking that you're in a peer relationship with Almighty God. Who do you think you are who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this, will it? He's using an analogy of a clay potter. The clay will not scream out at the one who fashioned it, why did you do this to me? Why did you fashion me this kind of vessel? Paul is saying, please remember your place. How dare you subject transcendent deity to such critique and criticism, a function of your own finite mind, to the extent that if you don't have full understanding of all of his ways, your trust wavers, your devotion vacillates, you look for another God, who do you think you are? God can do anything he wants to do. He doesn't have to explain himself. He doesn't have to justify himself. And he's not waiting for your vote of confidence. It is presumptuous, that's what Paul is saying, to sit in judgment of the God of all the earth. Wow. That's verse 20. Holy Toledo. That's Paul's response to verse 19. I don't know about you. I never got an answer to verse 19. I didn't get it. I just got Paul telling me, watch your step. Don't overstep your ground. That's all he's doing. You know why I think he did that? I don't think Paul could explain it. I don't think he got it any more than I do or you do. I don't think he understood how divine sovereignty, God choosing us, Human responsibility, we choosing him. I don't see how, I, I think Paul didn't know how to harmonize those things any more than I do, or you do. So you know what he does? He doesn't offer an explanation. It's just a mild rebuke. <laughs> Watch your place. Who do you think you are? He goes on, as if we didn't get spanked enough in verse 20, gets worse. Verse 21, or does not the potter have a right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath, God stands ready to manifest his wrath on sinful people. He's willing to demonstrate his wrath. What if he what if God, although willing to do this and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, and, 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 and he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy which he prepared beforehand for glory. What is it to you if God ordained that some would be vessels through whom his wrath would be demonstrated and others would be vessels by his mercy through whom his glory would be demonstrated? Who do you think you are to call God's motives into question? That's kind of what's going on. Verse 24, even us whom he called, now get this, not from among Jews only, but also from among Gentiles. Remember, he's speaking to Jews. 
And what he says now, they're feeling horrible the way it is. And now it's even worse. Paul is saying, not only did God not choose for salvation every Jew, just because he's a Jew, he actually elected some non-Jews <laughs> to salvation. Holy Toledo. I, I don't think you realize what impact that had in the first century. The Jews are the chosen people. The Gentiles are not. All the covenants, the promises, the temple service, all the stuff we read about, that pertains to Jews, not to Jews. And now Paul is saying, no, no, no. God's divine election uh, is, 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 is worse than you think. Not only did he not elect to save uh, every Jew, he elected to save lots of Gentiles. That's what he's saying. And, and then he actually quotes. You see what he's doing? He's quoting from Hebrew Scripture. He quotes from Hosea, verse 25. As he says also in Hosea, I will call those who were not my people, my people, and her who was not beloved, beloved. The original context was Israel being restored. Paul is making application to Gentile believers. And he's saying, listen, Jewish people, if you knew your own scriptures, you would know way back in Hosea, God said there's going to be a day when he's going to elect, save, choose those who were not his people and who were not his beloved. And he's going to call them my people and my beloved. He's saying, Jews, you should not be surprised that God elected some Gentiles to salvation because Hosea prophesied it a long time ago. Verse 26, And it shall be that in the place where it was said to them, You are not my people, there they shall be called sons of the living God. That's you guys. That's Gentile believers, you see. So Paul is saying, you're troubled with, with election. I'll give you even more trouble. Not only did he not choose all the Jews, he chose a lot of Gentiles. So that's like in your face. Oh, my goodness. And then it goes on. He's now quoting from Isaiah, verse 20. You see why I'm telling you his, his audience right now are Jews. All this is done in Hebraic context. So uh, Isaiah cries out concerning Israel. Though the number of the sons of Israel be like the sand of the sea, it is the remnant that will be saved. So you see what he's saying? No, Paul is saying, God didn't lie. God didn't fail. He never promised that every Jew will be saved. It's a remnant, a remnant. Just a few in this church, just a few. Actually, statistically, just a few in the world today. Did God fail us? Oh, no. He never promised to save Jews just because they're Jews. He chose some to be saved. That's kind of the point he's making here. In verse 28, for the Lord will execute his word on the earth thoroughly and quickly, and just as Isaiah foretold, unless the Lord of Sabaoth had left us a posterity, we would have become like Sodom. We would have resembled Gomorrah. If God didn't choose, elect, predestine a remnant in Israel to be saved, we would have been wiped out, vanished from the earth, just like Sodom and Gomorrah. Okay. Wow. Why does Paul do all this? Because the question is raised, is God at fault? In light of the fact that most Jews, whom he entered into covenant with, sent the law to, blessed with temple service, made priests, sent the Messiah to first, didn't God fail? Isn't he at fault since so few of those believe on him today? The answer is no. 
For God, Paul demonstrated, has always only chosen to elect some and not all. And to those whom he elected to salvation, he has fulfilled his word. So that's called the doctrine of divine election. Maybe you've heard it. Doctrine of divine election. Now here's the deal. If all we have is Romans chapter 9, we just proved the doctrine of divine election. You cannot explain it any other way. Paul offered three illustrations of how God exercises his free and sovereign will in saving who he will and in hardening who he will. However, you have to take the totality of Scripture. When we get together next, and who knows when that will be, you will then see Paul emphasize the second side of the salvation coin, human choice, free will, and responsibility. He's only dealing with one side of the equation here, divine election. It cannot be denied as being in play, but it is not solitary. It harmoniously cooperates with the doctrine of free will. So in answer to the question, did you choose God or did he choose you? Brother Chuck gave the right answer. The answer is yes. But wait, you say. How in the world uh, can these be harmonized? Which, I mean, which is it? Either God elected and chose me or I opted for him. It can't be, it can't be the same. We can't be harmonized. That's true in our minds, but it can be in the mind of God. So you can find as many passages of Scripture like Romans 9 that support the doctrine of divine election as you can that support the doctrine of human responsibility. You can have a verse-swapping contest if you want to do that. Now, here's the problem. These concepts cannot be harmonized in our own mind, but they can in God's. When I was a little kid in elementary school, they put us in art class. I hated it. I was just a bad kid. One time we were doing like pastel drawings or something. Who wants to do this? Or maybe it's just me. But anyway, I didn't want to do it. I wanted to play baseball or who knows what. So they gave us a can. After you do your pastel stuff, you spray it. You're supposed to spray it and it keeps it from smearing or something like that. Well, I thought the can was empty, so I bent it. Well, apparently it wasn't empty. Boom, and thing exploded, and all this stuff is going all over the place. And so this is my experience with art. So I didn't get too much out of it. I got a lot of detentions. I had to stand outside and all this kind of stuff. But I do remember one thing. I don't know what it was. I got one thing out of it. It was something called perspective. One time the teacher was teaching us about perspective. I don't know why this stuck with me. It was just interesting. And she was just showing us some art stuff where if you if you're standing close to it, let's say the bottom of the painting, let's say you're looking to two railroad tracks. You stand right here and you're looking at the railroad tracks and they're apart, right? They're running parallel. They're never going to come together. But as you look, you get, a, you get a far off perspective. Doesn't it look like the tracks appear to get closer and closer and even merge together? And that clicked with me. Oh, on one rail is the doctrine of divine election and on the other is the doctrine of Human responsibility. I'm just standing there. I'm an earthbound person. I can't pull them together, for crying out loud. But in the great beyond, when they merge in the mind of infinite God, they are perfectly harmonizable. And then I say, how great thou art. I can't explain it. I don't understand it, for crying out loud. Someone said a God fully comprehended is no God at all. 
He's God. Who do you think you are, a creature, calling God to task? Somehow, God is so great, he can harmonize seemingly incompatible concepts. Now, here's the problem today. People come up to you and they say to you, Stuart, are you a Calvinist or are you Arminian? So they use the labels. They want to put you in a box. You see what I mean? They don't want to have a conversation with you about the issues. Sometimes they say, you're familiar with the five points of Calvinism. It's an acronym. Acronym, yeah, TULIP. Each letter stands for something. And they want to know, of the five, how many points of Calvinism do you subscribe to? So it's not good enough that you say you're a Calvinist. If you're like a three-point Calvinist, oh, that's like you're a carnal Christian. You got to be five for five. So they want to they want to grade you. That's what we do. We like to put people in categories and boxes. Then we don't have to get to know them or interact with them. Oh, he's a Calvin. He's an Arminian. So I refuse to answer the question. I never answer it, ever, ever. You know why? John Calvin would turn over in his grave if he knew a whole movement named by his name came about. Martin Luther would turn over in his grave if he knew a whole denomination named themselves after him. These were saints sacrificed on the altar of blood and uh, all kinds of persecution for obeying the Lord Jesus Christ. They wanted to reform us uh, uh, away from institutions and denominations and labels so as to worship freely the Lord Jesus Christ. So I refuse to say I'm a Calvinist or I'm an Arminian. I usually say, why don't we discuss the issues? Not the labels, but the issues. And then sometimes people will force you to choose one rail or the other. You know why? Because we're so filled with pride, if we can't merge the two rails, we assume one rules out the other. Therefore, you can only be on one rail or the other. So which is it, they say? Do you believe in divine sovereignty, he chose you, or do you believe in human responsibility, the gospel is offered to whosoever Will. Which is it? Which one? No, I refuse to answer that way. I say to them, do not limit my options to one rail or the other. I say, you have every right to ask me a question, but you have no right to define the manner of my answer. Let me answer it to you. I believe in both. Because in the mind of Almighty God, both are involved in the plan of salvation. Uh, Charles Spurgeon was asked about this. You've heard of him one time. Uh, they said to him, how, do, how does these two concepts, uh, uh, Pastor Spurgeon, how do, they, how do they work together? How do you reconcile the two together? And, and uh, how, do, how do you reconcile divine sovereignty and human responsibility? And Spurgeon said, I never try to reconcile friends. I never try to reconcile friends. You see, those who uh, force you to choose and make a category are seeing these two biblical doctrines as being in an adversarial relationship. Spurgeon is saying they're not. They don't compete. They complement one another. I'm perfectly fine saying, oh, God, I don't know how you do all this. I don't know how you bring them together. But I know that you do because I just read Romans 9, Divine Election. Later on, the end of Romans 9 and into chapter 10, that'll be human responsibility. So what if you're sitting here, we're talking about those elect to salvation. Maybe you're wondering, boy, I wonder if I'm one of the elect. How could you know whether you're one of the 
elect? The answer is simple. Believe. Receive Jesus Christ as Savior by His grace through faith. You see, if a person truly has trusted Christ alone for salvation, that person is one of the elect. Now, which came first, the chicken or the egg? I don't have a clue. I just, wanted, I just want you to know, you want to settle the matter. There's nothing in the Bible that tells us labor over whether you're the elect or the non-elect. No. But there's plenty in the Bible that says to all who received him, who believed in his name, to all who received him, human responsibility, choice. To those who believe in his name, he gave power, the right, the privilege of becoming children of God. There was a well-known American preacher, journalist named Henry Ward Beecher. You perhaps have heard of him. He summarized it well. He said, the elect are whosoever will, and the non-elect are whosoever won't. Don't worry about whether you're the elect or the non-elect. The saved person in heaven will one day say, I'm in heaven because of God. And the lost person will one day say, I'm in hell because of me. Not because God sent me there against my will. A person's eternal separation from God is not based on God's rejection of that person. It is based on that person's rejection of God. Those who are saved have only God to thank. Listen, I was in the military uh, in 1973. I had heard of Jesus. I knew of Billy Graham. There were churches, there were crosses, People celebrate Christmas. It's not like I never heard of him. Somehow on September 5th, 1973, after a friend a, a little while prior to this had shared the gospel with me, somehow on the, everything made sense. It was like the veil was removed. It's like the blindness and stuffed up ears it was just all opened up and I beheld Jesus. Not literally, but it, it couldn't even have been more sensational if he was in the room. I beheld him for who he was, crucified, risen, ascended Savior. But, no, my Savior. I beheld him as my Savior, my Messiah, the one prophesied by all of my prophets. I beheld my own sin in, uh, uh, in contrast to his sinlessness and holiness. And I knew he was my only hope, hope of salvation. I, and I said to him, come into my life, forgive my sin, change me from the inside out. Well, how did all that happen? Could I tell you something? I didn't wake up on September 5th, 1973 and say this is a good day to be saved. God did something convicting me of sin and judgment of righteousness long before I could even call upon him by name. That's divine sovereignty and election. God stirred it up so I had an interest in repenting of sin, confessing it, and accepting him as Savior. I'm a dead person. Ephesians says we're spiritually dead. What can a dead person do on his or her own behalf? Nothing. God quickened me. God enabled me to respond to him. I didn't save myself. He saved me. But... That didn't rule out the fact I had to choose him by faith. How do they all work together? I don't know. I'm so thrilled that I don't. Why would I praise God if he was my equal? He's my superior and yours. So we bow before him. A seminary professor once said, try to explain election and you may lose your mind. But explain it away and you will lose your soul. I'm not afraid of the doctrine of divine election. I have many questions about it, but the scriptures stated 
And I don't mind saying, oh, God, thank you for saving me. Divine election. And it doesn't rule out human responsibilities. I close with this. Albert Einstein was married. You ever hear Albert Einstein? He had a wife. Uh, she was asked one time, Mrs. Einstein, do you understand the theory of relativity? She said, absolutely not. But I know Albert. And I know he can be trusted. Stuart, do you understand the doctrine of divine election and human responsibility and how the two contrasting points of view can be harmonized? Absolutely not. But I know the Lord Jesus Christ, and I know he can be trusted. That's all we need. That's all we need. When you accept him, enabled by his grace, contingent on the exercise of your will, a lot of this stuff doesn't matter. <laughs> it's fascinating. It's stimulating. It's interesting. But you just know, as our pastor says all the time, you know that you know that you know I belong to Jesus and he is mine. How all that transpired. I don't, I don't have all those answers. I know when we trust and obey, and there is no other way. We'll be happy in Jesus when we trust and obey. We should sing it. Let's sing. Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust. If you've not trusted Jesus as your Savior, why not tonight? Why not tonight? And you could maybe sense he's working in your life. Usually it's a measure of discomfort, unsettledness, an awareness of something missing, and even an awareness of separation from him. That's what sin does. If you haven't trusted Jesus as your Savior tonight, we would love to meet with you and help you towards that end. In the Connection Center, it's a room right behind us. There'll be wonderful people who'll talk with you, pray with you, field your questions. Can you imagine going from this place saying, redeemed, redeemed, redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, and then you praising it forevermore. Thank you for saving me.